2: Hello, welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pidgeon and Emily Wallace. Now, what would you tell your junior self? Someone asked me this question last week, Emily, and 25 years ago, seems a long time in uh, in anyone's language, what would I have done differently over the journey? So what we're going to do today is give you tips that we would tell our previous self, or it might even be what you'd tell your kids about property growing up. Nice, easy concepts that we can expand on um, given our experiences. So, without further ado,
1: let's get into it. So, first cab off the rank, John, and definitely I would be telling myself at any age this one, which is do not buy anything that is less than 50 square meters internally. Now, there's mm. quite a few reasons for this one. The most obvious one, and I'm sure long-term listeners will hear, have heard us bang on about this, but lending becomes a lot more difficult when a property is less than 50 square meters. And to my personal view on this is that anything less than 50 square meters is really small. It's almost like hotel <laughs> living,
2: isn't it? Yes, it, it is. Like, yeah, it's, it's pretty much studio, isn't
1: it? Yeah, when you look at a uh, like booking.com for their little um the rooms that they have in different hotels like I'd say most of them are between 30 to 36 which is a hotel room plus out a kitchen and maybe a bigger bathroom and a laundry like 50 creeps up on you pretty quickly so I definitely wouldn't wouldn't touch anything less than 50 square meters and that's just internally, like you need to add the balcony on top of that and the car space on top of that. Be very careful that yes. sometimes things are advertised as the golden 50 square meters or 55, but actually that number includes all space that belongs to the title, not just the internals.
2: Yeah, it's a really good point. I remember going to Singapore 20 odd years ago and, and walking into this what is a studio and it's very common over there because it's just jam-packed living and and I walked in and there's this bed right next to the kitchen sink, next to the toilet, next to the shower. And it's like, wow, how do people do this? But it, it's common practice over there. But in Australia, we've got enough land and space not to have to be confined to less than 50 square. And and uh, as, as you mentioned, banks don't like it. They'll walk away and you'll probably have to put in a a, a million percent deposit to even and land it. So yeah, no go for me as well. That's a, that's a great one.
1: Yeah. And I think that obviously applies more to the one bedroom space and for a ballpark figure on what a two bedroom should look like because people kind of go, well, if I want more than 50, then what should I be aiming for? Definitely above 50 for a one bedroom and ideally above 65 for a two bedroom.
2: Yeah. And, and I was dealing with a client the other day on this um, and, and I was even Going as far to say closer to hundred squares the better for two bed, isn't it? Like That's but huge. They,
1: in Melbourne, that's huge. <laughs> it, yeah,
2: well that's right. When you're in Melbourne it's it is. But um in other parts of the country we can afford a little bit more space. But um yeah, it's just um it's unbelievable when you, as a buyer's agent, when you're visiting different properties and you, and you, you go to a four-bedroom house with a backyard and then the next day you go into a 60-square a apartment, <laughs> it's a very different feeling, isn't it?
1: Yeah, chalk and cheese, but we don't need to be packed in like sardines, so make sure you no. remember that rule number one, buy something yep. that is more than 50 square meters internally.
2: Yeah, very good. No sardines. Next one is ANZ won't tell you, Emily, that NAB has a better rate. So, always use a sophisticated mortgage broker when creating the best finance structure for yourself, right? They're not going to send you up the road and say, oh, there's a special on or there's a deal or there's some cash back or anything else. They've got a great rate, et cetera. So... With that in mind, if you're not prepared to do the work and contact twenty, twenty-five lenders without putting in applications, by the way, if we start to put in multiple applications, our, our credit rating takes a takes a real hit. Um, we've got to do all that research and then come to the conclusion that this lender is the best for us. Like no brainer for me, that a mortgage broker can do all that hard work for us. The legwork, they're dealing with it every day and they can come back and surmise and say, right, these two or three lenders are going to be suitable for you. And uh, obviously they get paid by the lender that you ultimately choose. But that's um, that's the, the law of the land.
1: And I think one thing that the general public, if they've never used a broker, may not understand is that brokers has, have levers that they can pull within the bank. They've got what's known as a BDM, so a business development manager or a relationship manager at the bank that's usually their centre point of contact. That person then reports directly into usually um, credit or the loan processing team. And if there are certain cases that do require a couple of strings to be pulled or an unusual case, you you usually will have a lot more luck going through someone who's got an established relationship with the bank rather than you trying to do it yourself and sort of advocate for yourself in that process.
2: Yeah, that's a very good point. It's um, it's almost a middle person within the middle person, mm-hmm. isn't it? And, uh, and, and they also have certain ratings, don't they? And their turnaround times can be quicker if they're a good broker as well, a, a, a good broker will have good ratings with good lenders, and that pushes you up the tree a lot quicker than you going and doing it yourself. And, and an example of that, I was talking to one of those brokers the other day, and and uh, I said, look, this particular bank has a as a ten day turnaround, like that's just crazy. It's too long for a client. He said, well, actually, we've got a relationship with them that says it's going to be a forty 48- eight. Our turnaround, so that's just the relationship that they develop over the journey um, through
1: through doing good work. Yeah, I think consistency is key. If someone's processing loans left, right, and center all day long, they're going to have a much better chance at getting yours across the line than you would on your own. So, it's a no-brainer. Engage a broker. Yep. Don't be silly. Just do it.
2: <laughs> just do it. Just
1: do it. <laughs> and if you need one, head to sort your money out, get help. Uh, click on that button and select broker is what you need to be connected to and you'll be linked up with a good egg.
2: A good egg, yes. Now, that doesn't mean we don't ask good questions, by the mm. way. So, yes, you're engaging your your mortgage broker, but you're asking good questions of them, first of all, to recruit them, but secondly, through the process so you get a full understanding of what's going on.
1: Correct. Now, the third one that I think we should highlight is around a common misconception related to deposits. So, the third point that we'd be telling our younger selves is you do not need a 20% deposit to purchase a property. It is a myth. It is not fact. There are ways around it. Uh, you could get in with a smaller deposit, maybe even a parental guarantor for a even a 5% deposit. You need to understand state and federal legislation to be able to manoeuvre Potentially smaller deposits under certain schemes as well. But 20% is a myth, and you could be saving for a really long time if you didn't know that.
2: Mm, Absolutely, you should. um, Absolutely, you could. And you won't remember this, Emily, because you probably weren't alive when I was first buying property, but uh, <laughs> we used to be able to get 100% loans. Like that's that was how crazy it was before, well, probably GFC really um, and, and they've, the banking system's reined that in a little bit now. But, uh, yeah, the the higher risk profile investors were, were having a hell of a time going in with little money down and um, and just knowing that the, the bricks and mortar was strong. So, yeah, the, if, if someone's saying 20% only these days, I would say it's a bit antiquated.
1: Yeah, it really it probably is less and less common. And I would say what I come across a lot is parental guarantors. That's how I got into the property market, parental guarantor for my Mm. first one. Honestly, otherwise I still probably wouldn't own anything yet. Like it just takes so long. And I appreciate not everybody – has the accessibility to a parental guarantor. But if that's not the case, then understanding some of the state-based and federal-based uh, schemes that are available with low deposits, even some of them as low as 2% deposits to get yeah. into the market is something that you really need to do your homework on and be across.
2: Yeah. And and just on the state bit, understanding that uh, like in New South Wales, for example, we can choose land tax over stamp duty. So there might be uh, again accelerating your entry by two or three years because of that uh, one, one decision um, having the ability to avoid lmI because we're a medical professional or or um, sports person or whatever that might be so yeah there's this we we need to keep our ears low to the ground when when looking at different options because we as we say there's a will there's a way right now this one I know you would back me up on Emily, but we're always, when we're we're looking to buy property, we're always wanting to have conditions to our offer. And the two, well, probably the three main ones that are are non-negotiables for me, subject to satisfactory building and pest inspection, subject to satisfactory finance approval, and subject to review of the contract. So all those three things need to get green lights well and truly before we go unconditional on the contract. So at that stage, it's only an offer. Yes, that offer's been accepted. Yes, it means that potentially someone else can come in over the top and buy it from us during that period, but we don't wanna go in and buy something unconditional without Seeing if there's termites or if there's structural issues or there's there's a whole heap of damage that we we um, that a building inspectors found out. It's going to cost us thousands of thousands just for the emotion of uh, of buying a property.
1: Just on that, even in the last couple of weeks, I've been chatting to people about, setting aside a due diligence budget because there might be cases where actually it's not so much about making the offer subject to a building and pest. It might be you have concerns and you want to do a building and pest beforehand because it will influence the price that you put forward. Sometimes negotiating a reduction of the price once it's already been agreed and something flags in the building and pest can be more difficult than getting one done up front, Call it, you know, 600 bucks to get it done. Then realising we need to allocate call it 15 grand to maybe roof replacement and something else. And so therefore, when you put your offer forward and it is at X amount, you can explain, we actually know there's a budget allocation for maintenance within the offer that we're putting forward. I wouldn't say that is the stock standard way of how majority of people would buy property. But in cases where you do already have red flags just from your I not even from a building in PESTI, and then you get the report and then make the offer. That can also be another way around it. But I think you need to mentally prepare to have a due diligence budget allocated to the process. There is money you're going to need to part with along the way because you're not going to win every offer that you put forward or every auction that you go for as well. And there is some cost involved in being ready if you do win.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a very good point. Uh, some vendors and and we 're dealing with an agent uh, that we 've probably dealt with in the last couple of years that will make their vendor have a building and pest inspection completed and they 'll have it ready for any potential buyer so that could save you five six hundred dollars uh, of not that you don 't have to fork out uh, however, you still might choose to go and get your independent report now I know this agent and as i said we 've been dealing with them for some time, so I trust that that a building and pest inspector is doing what they should be doing, even though it's on behalf of the vendor. But uh, either way, you need to have that completed um, before you fully commit to the property. And, and obviously some same with the contract and, uh, and the finance, you don't want to have a finance fall over in the middle of um, negotiations when, uh, especially when maybe interest rates have risen or your pre-approval might have expired, something like that. So you, you need to have that as a, as a get out clause.
1: Just a hot tip on that, something just sprung to mind as you were talking about when the vendor pays for the report. There's also a platform called Before You Bid, and that will document uh, any reports that building and pest inspectors have done. I believe they sit there for a six month period and you can purchase the on sale of that report. It may even be that another buyer had bought it as part of their process and you're buying it from them. But yeah, just keep in mind that there are options to try and minimize the costs um, at times. I think in New South Wales, it's a little bit more common that the vendor does buy the building and pest report. But this before you bid, I'm seeing it pop up in Victoria a little bit more um, because it's often a complaint from first-term buyers that they want to do due diligence, but if they just keep forking out, you know, 600 here, 600 there, it does add up.
2: Yeah, good good tip. Hey, just on that... Mm. uh, (laughs) We, uh, we're looking for a development site for a client yeah. and we want the house to be in okay condition, um, not a complete knockdown, um, to be able to improve a little bit and rent it out and, and build something at the back, sort of battle act style. any case, uh, the agent said, I believe someone's already got a building and pest, a potential buyer, um, maybe just see who that might be. So I rang up a building and pest inspector they use and said, hey, have you done an inspection on this property here? And they looked up, said, yeah, we have. I said, so what's the story? Because we've been dealing with him, he can tell me free of charge. <laughs> he goes, John, run a mile. Oh, so, no way. <laughs> uh, that was quite funny. It must but, have been uh, pretty
1: bad for him to say that.
2: It was, he doesn't say that very often, if ever. So, yeah, we, we ran a mile. <laughs>
1: That's good. That's, that shows a value in a relationship, hey? He didn't have to even buy it. He just told you. Correct. Yeah, he was,
2: yeah 10 seconds. <laughs> Love uh, <away> it. <laughs> we, so
1: Now, back to our list. Because we, I mean, you and I get sidetracked all the time, don't we? Sometimes we, we think about something and off we go. We could talk properly. Well, day. Yeah, I think
2: people hopefully like stories and that are relevant. Anyway, hopefully they oh, are. Totally. Okay. So on to the next one. And we might need to fly through these a little bit quicker. Um, but in any case, the fifth one is don't buy the first thing you see. Now, you and I know that, Emily, but for someone out there that can get emotionally wrapped up, and there's pre-approvals have come through, and this is how much I can land, and I go to an open on the weekend, and this looks unbelievable, and the agent said uh, it's uh, I can buy it for this, uh, we can get excited. So, as uh, people who have been loyal fans over the over the journey may have heard me say a hundred ten one, which basically means inspect a hundred or at least view a hundred online or in person, either or either. Uh, Put in ten offers and buy one. Now, why I came up with that ratio was first of all it rounds out hundred, ten and one. But secondly, it just gives you the feeling or, or the, the the confidence that you've had a look at enough of the market. Now it might not be a hundred and it might not be ten offers, but if we 're getting up there in okay i 've inspected a lot of these properties, I get a feel for the price, I get a feel for the neighborhoods I f- get a feel for the good and bads and the busy streets and the na- and the schools and the parks and all these things, and then I put in multiple offers i 'm not so emotionally wrapped up in just this one offer that i 'm hanging my hat on uh, versus going and looking at three properties, putting in one offer, waiting a couple of weeks, and then missing out, I'm back to square one. So it's a it's a bullish approach, but it's also a, a long game to say, well, I'm, I'm not wrapped up in anything in particular, but these are my key criteria. And if I find it in those hundred, then away I go.
1: I'm just going to throw in what I would say might be an exception <laughs> <Right> on, <laughs> to your own rule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love it. No, I, I agree with you. I actually, in theory, do agree with the rule. Uh, particularly around the hundred inspection, whether it's online or, you know, majority of those to try and be in person. So you've got a really good feel. The only exception to it would be though, probably more so in the home buying space is if something is a rarity, like sometimes there's profiles that they, you might see one sell every second month. And so therefore you could literally be looking for years um, and have a missed opportunity, but Generally speaking, most purchases um, that are stock standard, I think the formula definitely applies to. If it's a rarity, there's a chance that you might only even you might only have a chance to place one or two offers in a whole year yes. you know, that fall in price point and area. So, if it is a unicorn you're looking for, uh, perhaps consider that that might be a little bit more lean, but certainly you couldn't know that's the case unless you'd looked at 100 to begin with.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, and and I I don't want to debate this, I love when I get challenged, Um, is if there was that unicorn, would we have looked at a few properties beforehand to understand that that is the unicorn?
1: Yeah, indeed. Yeah,
2: so it might not be the 10 offers, it might be the 30 then one. 30 inspections, These my unicorn, away I go.
1: We love a unicorn. <laughs> love a
2: unicorn. <laughs> yeah. So don't feel deflated to feel you have to inspect 100, um, but just know that the, the first thing you see model isn't always a great outcome.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, there are people who do just start their journey and they go to this open home and they love it, but that's okay. You need some evidence to back up that it justifies you loving it. I think that's the general consensus of the rule as well.
2: Yeah. And we're probably not in it at the moment nationally, uh, but in hot markets, we can easily get wrapped up in, oh, I'm just going to buy this thing Mm. because otherwise I'm going to miss out and I'll miss out completely and the market's moving ahead in front of me. We don't want FOMO. (laughs) No,
0: that's (laughs) right.
1: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Jumping straight into point number six, we're talking about not going searching for a property without a strategy. Now, I liken this to going to the grocery store without a shopping list. It never ends well for anyone. You overbuy, you add some extra treats, and then you've probably forgotten what you even went for, which might have been toilet paper and no one wins. So, it's really, really important to go into any property purchase with a strategy and a plan as to what that property needs to be in a purchase price, if it's an investment what does that need to stack up in terms of yield and predicted growth? And if it is a home that you're buying, what is a long-term purchase of that? Are you living in it for five years and then flipping it to an investment? Is it a place that you're buying that needs renovation to grow into? There's so many factors that go into it. Um, And I know, John, you've done an episode specifically around your eight-point strategy that people need to look at before they even step foot inside a property.
2: Yeah, and and again, it's that's like the hundred ten one. It, it's just that confidence and the due diligence to know that you've got all ducks in a row. Um, the hundred ten one is more about things out of our control, so properties out there in in the particular suburb. The the strategy is more about us, isn't it? It's about how this relates to us in re, in respect to our buying entity, in respect to our yield, if it's an investment, respect to the price point and our risk profile, and the and the type of property that we're comfortable with. So a lot of it's us, and then the rest of it is well the the general location and and what's going to work best for for your strategy is that capital growth or is it cash flow? Is it some tax benefits? Is it a combination of all three? Really, really important to know that, I don't know about you, but it's so easy just to jump on realestate.com and say, oh, wow, look at this property or look at this town or look at this price and, and do all that before you actually even understand what your strategy is, or even what a strategy is. Like it's really common, and, and so many people come and come to us and say, Well, yeah, we're ready to buy and we've been looking for three months. Okay, what's your strategy? I don't know. I've just been looking on realestate.com. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think it becomes a process of elimination once you have your strategy, too. It's like, Well, that doesn't fit the bill, that doesn't fit the bill. It's actually easier to say no to things because you know. What you're looking for, whereas when you don't have one, you kind of go, "Oh, well, that could work. We could, we could go down that avenue instead of what we were thinking we might do."
2: Yeah, yeah. You you start in Burnie and end up in Bunbury. <laughs> <laughs> on your search. Is
1: that a country saying or?
2: <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Well, they're, I'm just reaching out to the to the regional parts of the country, Emily. There's too much Sydney and Melbourne talk. I agree, actually.
1: <laughs> we can't forget about our regional listeners. Shout out to all of you.
2: Yeah, I like the shopping list uh, analogy though because um, it's my wife's birthday today and oh. I'm, I'm going to buy some carrot cake ingredients. So just making sure that I have got that list a so written that we, list. Don't, we, we don't leave out the flour.
1: Yeah. Make sure you take everything. I'm I'm the best for writing a list. I'm the worst for remembering to actually take it. Like I write a paper list and I always leave mm. it on the front seat of my car. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs>
2: Love it. Very good. So the next one I've got up my sleeve, which I would tell my eldest son and then the next two when they're ready, is don't try and pick the market cycle. Buy when you are ready to. And 2023 is really a great example of that, isn't it? There's a lot of people out there I find that are sitting on the fence. They've they've inquired, they've thought about buying, they know they've got a pre-approval ready to buy but there's just this, oh, what if the market dips a little bit more or I think it'll dip 10% because Philip Lowe said it, it was going to dip, right? There's, there's just so much out of our control when we do that. I just think we need to buy when we're ready, both from a finance point of view and from a mindset point of view is yes, I'm going to buy a property. That's the concept. That's the strategy I'm going with. So I should be buying now as opposed to waiting 12 months because that 12 months becomes two years, becomes five years. So many people we've met have come 10 years later and say, I wish I bought then or I wish I didn't hold off three years or two years or even six months in a lot of cases, especially in the Sydney market that's had so many little jumps of eight and 10% that they've missed two or three of those. And now they're forced out of the market potentially for good.
1: The only way, you know, the market is going up is once it's turned around. And for most people, it's too late. You can't time it. Like you just, you can't time the market. I think that analogy or that sentiment of timing things is just really silly when you think about it the data in itself is usually 3 months behind anyway so you're already on the back foot and the same opportunities aren't available for a year at a time like properties last on the market maybe 30 45 days 60 plus in some cases if they're real if they're really struggling but also just on this note John I think it's really important that listeners understand I don't personally believe in bargain buying. Like If a property is a bargain buy, it's not really the property you want to be buying. You want a property that everybody wants even in a difficult market. They're the properties that sell extremely well in a great market and they still sell well when things are a little bit uncertain and that's what we strive for is A-grade real estate. These bargain B-minus and C-grade properties is not really what we want to be uh, investing into.
2: No, that, that's a good point. And we're seeing that at the moment actually where the ordinary properties are, are discounted. So, there's no doubt about that. You can get yourself a discount with those type of properties in certain areas and certain types of properties. But also, the good properties, because there's such tight supply, those properties are going over what people expect them to, mm. right? And we we've, uh, we saw that in Sydney last week. We went to an auction. One point five was the guide, and we realistically thought the guide was accurate, not just lowballed. And it went for one point six five. Yeah. So that was an example of a good property in tight supply. Now, if there's an oversupply, we probably don't want to be buying in that area anyway. Um, case in point for what you've mentioned. So. If you're sitting there saying, I'd love to time the market, and I really think that's a strategy, then timing the market is just changing the market that you're buying in, not holding off buying the property altogether. So you might say, well, I go and buy in this location as opposed to this one because of the the heat of that particular market.
1: Yeah, the whole of Australia isn't under the same quotation marks market it's you know it's varied and that's the beauty of it you can buy anywhere particularly when it, when it comes to investment be a borderless investor if your timing doesn't work in regional vic go check out brisbane <laughs> you know it's it's you've got yep. the beauty of moving around moving on to the next one a really important one for buyers both home buying and investing Is when you're at open homes, make sure you actually engage with the agent so that you can find out as much as you can about the property, but also they may be able to help you with what you're looking for. The good ones actually. Work backwards from what buyers are looking for because they've got the demand sitting there and they go and look through their database of appraisals that they've completed and try and marry it up with a vendor they've recently spoken to. Now, just keep in mind they are working in the interest of the vendor, so they're there to help, but they do have a motivation to get the highest price possible. Just make sure we keep that in mind. But that being said, the great agents will be helpful to buyers and. You know, I personally treat agents as colleagues and the feedback I get is they hate it when buyers are liars. That's a, a phrase in the industry, buyers are liars. Um, they just don't feel that, you know, that they're fully honest in what they're looking for. Um, because, is that the
2: pot calling the kettle black?
1: Oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hello, agents.
1: Yeah, look, agents, it's not great that they they have a certain reputation. And having just been to a real estate conference where it was full of of the typical real estate agent persona, I was like, okay, I get it. But yes. they're people.
2: Yes, absolutely. Now, what we're asking everyone to do is create relations and get a feel for what's out there for your benefit.
1: Yeah, indeed. They're the gatekeepers to all the properties, you know, mm. particularly agents who have market share in the market you're looking in, you know, Realestate.com will tell you who sells the most properties in your postcode. Make friends with that real estate agent or real estate agency. It's highly likely they've got the property that you're going to buy eventually.
2: Yeah. Just just on that, when you mentioned about they, the gatekeeper, I, I, I once found a property, we ended up buying it, but where I was dealing directly with the vendor, yep. no agent involved. And the solicitor on their side was actually trying to talk them out of it because there was no agent involved and in their mind, there was no transparency. So, Mm. yeah, um, no relevance to that, but just uh, it was an interesting one. When If you're trying to find vendors buying property, you might hit a a roadblock with the solicitor. Do
1: you know what's so funny about that and goes to show the way that Australian real estate uh, industry sort of operates is no one ever questions when a buyer is representing themselves, do they? No solicitor goes, "Oh, you probably need some representation in this." <laughs> but yeah, when it's a vendor, exactly. all of a sudden yeah. you've got to have an agent in the mix. That's a very yeah. interesting experience, John.
2: Very telling. Okay, now this one, Emily, is a bit of owner occupier versus investment choice, yep. um, and and it's it leads back to deposits. So when we're thinking about our deposits and we have have a lot of clarity calls around this and and which way we should structure it for the long-term and knowing your overall long-term plan is is key in this or having an idea at least, is using cash as a deposit on your own home and using equity for your investment purchases, right, where possible. Okay. Now it's not always going to be a one size fits all, but the reason being is Generally speaking, debt on our owner-occupied property is bad debt considered. No, no income, uh, no tax deductions associated with that. Um, so we want to keep that loan amount down, and we want to keep paying that loan down as quickly as possible. So putting cash in is strongly advised. The LMI is not tax deductible, et cetera. Et cetera. So the more cash we put in, the better. Uh, whereas investment, if we can use the equity. To out of our own home that we live in, then that will be tax deductible because it 's an income producing asset so that 's the order that we would like to do things now sometimes that 's not always the case and we, um, we have uh, we, we have all this property that we have all these properties, but now we want to go and buy our own or occupy a home but we 've got no cash so we 're equity rich and cash poor, but I want to live in my own home all right so We need to think about before we go and buy four properties, think about when do we want our principal place and how much cash we've got up our sleeve for when that event comes.
1: Yeah, correct. And I think the biggest thing in all of this is having the right people on board to help advise and forecast what your property plans going to be. And I understand things change, life happens, you know, what you set out to start with, potentially if you were starting on your own and you met someone along the way and you partnered up buying your first home together, things can change, but having advisors in your corner, particularly if you if you do have a couple of investment properties, an accountant who sort of liaises with ideally a broker and maybe a financial planner as well, a little A team there would be ideal to workshop the what if scenarios of the cash versus equity equation.
2: Mm, absolutely, yeah. And, and you'll get a lot of financial planners that can't or won't or shouldn't talk property, so that may need outsourcing again. But, um, yeah, good specialist in their field is uh, is really critical with all that. But also understanding and telling them just what you, you want long term because yeah. uh, not thinking about that
1: uh, may run you into some issues as well. So the final one to finish on is around an element of outsourcing. If you are only able to search for property on the weekend, so you're just spending your Saturday back to back, that's the only time you have to be committing to inspecting properties, then you really probably should consider the services of a buyer's agent as a lot of the good deals can get snapped up outside of a Saturday. It's a full-time job to really be on the ball with the property market, hence why the role of a buyer's agent or a buyer's advocate actually exists.
2: You're right, and it doesn't mean eight hours a day every day, does it? It just means keeping in tune with what's happening on a daily level. That might be a quick message to a to an agent. It might be looking online. It might be following up on some emails. It might be getting a, a, a contract. If if we're dedicating just Saturday and and maybe a bit of Sunday, then then maybe we may be missing out on a lot of options. Uh, yeah, I agree.
1: Do you know what's interesting? Some people go through the home buying process you know, representing themselves and they love it so much that they actually want to do that as like their full-time job. But some people I speak to, they're like, look, we'd love to have you help, but to be honest, this is like our second job. We enjoy it so much that like it's not a chore. <laughs> For some people it's yes. an absolute chore. For other people it's almost like a career change. They're like, Yep, yeah, I could get into this. Uh, and following our episode actually, I think it was released only a few weeks ago, there was one around like – understanding what a BA actually does or what's a good one versus a great one. Yes. Um, I don't know about you. You're maybe a little less active on Instagram than I am. I get a lot of messages saying like, how did you get into it? How did you start? What do yeah. you do? Yeah. You're a bit more proactive than me though, John, in that you kind of help people become buyers advocates, right? Yeah. Well, I
2: suppose it was on the back of – a few of those call outs to say, well, how did you get in the industry? And I want to do that because I've, as you said, found my own home and I loved it. And I just love when when I'm bored, I don't go and watch Desperate Housewives. I, I, I look on realestate.com. So that's just a passion of mine. So as we always speak about, we want to we want to do something that we love in this mm. life from nine to five. So yeah, a lot of people want to enter the industry. And, and I think buyer's agents really, aren't they, Emily, like new to Australia in in, uh, in reality. Like they've been around for years in, in the US, but I think probably in the last 10 years, they've really come uh, another level in, in respect to understanding what they do and why we would use one. Um, so yeah, I run a... A Or train the trainer course it's called, so it's a 12-month journey where they get to understand the processes and tools behind becoming a buyer's agent and in respect to the business and how to deal with clients and the tools um, in which to to engage with the agents and the vendors and just the yeah, basically the whole process. So we are taking uh, another group through starting July 1. So if it is of interest, we'll put it in the show notes and you can click through and we'll uh, – hand pick those who want to come on board.
1: Do the um, people that are in that program, do they actually work with you or is it like a once a week catch up or like, what does it actually look like?
2: Yeah. So they have uh, group workshops for the that I'll run on a monthly basis yeah. and we'll also have one-on-one meetings. So it's, it's, it's personalised coaching but it's also in a group situation where they get to bounce ideas off each other. And, and the the current one we're with at the minute, like there's actually a financial planner in there who's oh. doing it. Um, there's there's a school teacher, there's a policeman, there's yeah, there's, a, there's a whole range of people that either one, want to do it as interest to be able to fast track their knowledge or two, want to transition into the industry, either as a property coach or a buyer's agent. So I I cover off on both of that aspect because coaching for me is teaching someone to fish, Mm -hmm. whereas a buyer's agent is essentially fishing for them.
1: Yeah, that's a good analogy. There's a key difference in that. And I do think the sector is growing and it needs quality people in the space. I think that's Correct. the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah,
2: absolutely. On the back of um, some past media.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, we could do an episode on that, couldn't we? <laughs>
2: we could do an episode on that. <laughs> yes.
1: Oh, boy.
2: All right. I think that's uh, all we've got time for today. Uh, hopefully, you've enjoyed those tips. Pass them on to your kids or if you're in your early 20s and you having kids scares you, then just take them on board yourself um, and uh, yeah. Yeah. I think there a lot of them you'd sit back and say well they're quite logical but it doesn't mean that everyone abides by them either because emotion gets in the way doesn't it
1: It's like any advice it sounds like everything sounds relatively straightforward but doing it is the actual trick so That's right. listen and then take action
2: Yeah 100% All right thank you for allowing us into your ears until next time we'll chat
0: We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.
2: Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education.
1: That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps.
2: I've created the Solve Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space.
1: And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course.
2: Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today.